First Peter chapter 5. We are, um, next Sunday we'll conclude uh, our series in First Peter and um, we'll start uh, in October going in a different direction and actually Pastor Josh will be preaching the first Sunday of October, be his last Sunday here before they launch the church in Hartford City. So um, I'll be preaching next Sunday from the end of First Peter 5. Uh, let me just say at the outset, this is, um, and I say this fairly often, especially when we're preaching through a book in the Bible, there are certain texts when you commit yourself to preaching all the way through a book that you get to and you think, well, what am I going to do with that? Because that's, uh, it's not a text that would be generally preached, uh, I don't think, in a Sunday morning service. Uh, and yet there is some really um, important truth for us, and I just trust the Holy Spirit will uh, speak to us uh, from this um, Let's just read the text, 1 Peter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Holy Spirit, um, we are very aware of your presence in this place this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the vibrant worship that has brought us near to you and you have inhabited. That's why we feel and sense your presence uh, so real and so strong is because you inhabit the praise of your people. And I thank you, Lord, that um, your word, every, every verse... Every jot, every tittle is inspired. It is God-breathed and it is profitable to us. So I pray, God, that you will do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, open your word up to us and um, help us to receive the bread of life. Ask, Lord, that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. I pray, God, that your anointing would rest upon the ministry of your word, upon my life, not because I deserve that, but because I need that to rightly communicate the word of God. So speak to our hearts this morning in these few moments that remain, I pray. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. To, um, to rightly understand this passage of scripture, really like any, but maybe more this than others, it is imperative for us to understand the context uh, from which it was written. We've talked a lot in this series about First Peter being written to um, believers that really felt like exiles. They were living in a world to which they did not belong, like we are today. I, I would guess that most of us in this room maybe more than ever, feel like we are living in a world in which we don't belong. As things change around us, as our culture seems to spiral downward, uh, I think more and more 
those who hold to the truth of Scripture feel like um, we are kind of on the outside looking in. And this was written to just such a people. These people were experiencing suffering. Uh, They were being ostracized for their faith. Uh, They were being persecuted. And um, it is to these people that Peter writes. Now, our text this morning, the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5, are actually sandwiched in between two other texts. The, The first one on one side of this sandwich text is Peter's warning about trials that are to come. We read this last week, beloved, don't think it's strange, the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but count it as joy or rejoice to the extent that you are able to partake in Christ's sufferings. So that is on one side of our text today. And then on the other side is a word of encouragement about facing that suffering. This will be our text next Sunday when Peter will write these words, Be sober and vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. So the words that we just read from 1 Peter 5, the first five verses are sandwiched in between these two passages about suffering. It is clear that the church then as now was facing difficult times and there was at least the potential as there is now for suffering, pushback, being ostracized or even persecution. What is clear is that leadership was a key to surviving and thriving in the midst of those difficult times. Again, uh, I would probably be a little more comfortable if I was preaching this to 100 or 150 pastors that were getting ready to go into ministry because it has a lot to do with the pastoral role. But since we've committed to preaching through, I, I want to deal with this. And it has a lot to say to us. But what Peter is saying is that leadership in the church is crucial to the church being healthy through difficult times. Uh, there's also, as we'll look at at the end, there's a charge to the younger and how their response to the elders uh, is supposed to look like, what it is supposed to look like. And then thirdly, there's kind of a general statement that we will land on uh, this morning at the conclusion. Now, the leadership that is specifically noted in this text is, is the elders. Uh, the word elder in the Greek is presbyteros. And it literally means uh, older man. I'm not real thrilled with that description or that definition, but that's literally what it means. However, it, was, it, it came to be used as the word that described the primary leadership, even very specifically those who served in pastoral roles in the churches in the New Testament in Asia Minor. In Acts chapter 20, we'll look at this text a little later, but Paul is actually going to make a quick trip to Ephesus and he's going to call out the elders of the churches of Ephesus and he is going to pray with them, the elders, presbyteros, but he is going to give them the role of an overseer. And the word for overseer is the word episkopos. It's where we get overseer or bishop. And so 
um, elder and episkopos or presbyteros and episkopos are words that are very interchangeable. The elder, the overseer, the bishop are all interchangeable words. In first Ti- er, excuse me, in Titus 1 7, Paul actually tells Timothy or Titus to ordain elders, and he uses the word presbyteros, and then he lists the qualifications of an overseer, which is an episkopos. And so again, we see elders and overseers really serve the same role. As a matter of fact, there are other New Testament words, pastors, uh, shepherds, elders that labor in the word. These are specifically the people that Peter is addressing. There's also kind of an, uh, an underlying um, address to all those who serve in leadership um, in the body of Christ. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is how do we make sure that we remain healthy um, as a church? How do we make sure that we remain healthy through difficult times, not knowing uh, what our future may hold? And a lot of that we will see depends upon the leadership of the church and then the response of the younger part of the congregation as well as the general response of all. Let's begin um, and, and talk about church leadership or pastors specifically must understand and fully embrace their calling. If we're going to be healthy, it is important that those in leadership understand their calling. Let me just say a word about calling real quickly. First of all, we are all called at some level. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and come after me and take up his cross and follow me. It was a calling to Christ first. Everyone in this room has that calling to Christ to follow after him. But there are some that have a very specific vocational call into ministry. Not everyone is alike. I'll talk about that in a moment. I've shared with you many times before, but I remember mine when I was 16 years of age and we were worshiping in what is now Conaway Hall, the old sanctuary. And I was sitting in the back where all the teenagers sat back then. And um, we've made great progress. Now they've moved to the front, but back then all the teenagers sat in the back and, um, and watch the dead flies in the winter, you know, they would just kind of uh, land and fall. But I was sitting back there, we had an evangelist speaking, his name was Bruce Burklow, some of you may know that name, and he and his wife, Kathy, were here ministering, and Bruce preached from the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And at the end of that message, I went to the altar at the age of 16, and I responded, I knew that God had called me into ministry, and there was never a moment that I thought, thought about doing anything else. That was what I was going to do, I I started immediately making plans to go to Bible college and I pastored my first church at 21 and now I'm not 21 any longer. All right. So that's the story of, of my calling. Now, not everybody has that kind of call. There are some that are just shaped toward leadership without a specific call. And God seems to order their steps and they seem to flourish in the role of ministry. They find themselves really um, experiencing fruits because that's where God has led them to be. And they didn't have that kind of call that I had. And others have different, um, different contexts and different circumstances. Here's what I want to say. Everyone who senses that call into ministry at some point or another, whatever that call looks like, they have to wrestle with that call. They have to know this is what I am to do. There's nothing else that I can do 
that will really fulfill me and fulfill God's design on my life. Let me tell you, there were a whole lot of pastors wrestling with the call since March. Can I just tell you that? This has been a time everybody says, is this really what you want me to do? Because this has been a, a challenging time for sure. But all that are called into ministry have to wrestle with that call. Now, let me talk about called leaders and let me share with you four or five things about called leaders. Number one, um, called leaders, uh, go ahead and flip the next screen. Called leaders, um, I, I guess, go back one screen. I missed it. Um, the church, called leaders must understand their privilege. We're already beyond that. One more screen. Uh, we lost it. All right, that's fine. I'll read First Peter 5 and verse number 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory which shall be revealed. Now look at me for just a moment. Called leaders, number one, must understand their privilege. It is a privilege to be called into ministry. This is what Peter is talking about. He considers himself a fellow elder. And notice this phrase, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Witness of the sufferings of Christ. We have learned over the last several weeks that it is a privilege to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, I want to know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And so when we suffer for the sake of Christ, it is a privilege for us because we are joined with him in that. And not only that, but Paul says those who suffer with him will be glorified with him as well. How many are looking forward to that day? All right. And so that is the privilege that we have to experience the sufferings of Christ. But Peter here, I think, is speaking even a little more specifically. Now, we know that Peter ran from the cross. But Peter had experienced some of the sufferings of Jesus. He saw how that Jesus was treated and how he was pushed back and how the Pharisees hated him. He uh, sat outside the judgment hall when Jesus was being beaten and being whipped and his beard was being plucked and he was being rebuked and, and, and spat upon. He saw that suffering and Peter saw the suffering of Jesus in Gethsemane, albeit he fell asleep two or three times, but, but at least he saw the suffering of Jesus as he sweat drops of blood. So Peter knew what it was like to witness the sufferings of Christ. The bottom line here is Peter is saying that those who will lead others must have a personal intimacy and knowledge of Christ. You can't lead someone somewhere that you've not been. If you don't know him, you can't really lead. And Peter is pleading with others that will be in leadership. You must witness to the sufferings of Christ. But even beyond the experience of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, listen, the greatest privilege is to witness to in the sense of preaching the sufferings of Christ. I've told you this so many times, and I mean it. There is absolutely no greater honor than to stand here every Sunday morning and preach the word of God. It is fun. It is exciting. It is this huge privilege because I'm not telling about someone who did good things and is dead and gone. I am preaching about one 
who suffered, died, was buried, resurrected, ascended, and is coming back. So it is a, a great privilege to witness to the sufferings of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to the church at Corinth, I don't want to know anything. I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so being witness to the sufferings of Christ personally and proclaiming is a privilege that every called leader must know and appreciate. Secondly, um, called leaders must understand and embrace their responsibility. Look at this verse, and this verse is somewhat haunting. Shepherd the flock of God as overseers. Every one of us who calls ourselves a pastor in every church in America probably We need to be reminded of this, whether we pastor 50 people or 5,000 people, it's God's people we're pastoring. It's his flock and not ours. You see that shepherd the flock of God as overseers. It's a very humbling thing to recognize this responsibility is not my church. This is the flock of God that God has entrusted in this case to me. Thomas Rusain in his dissertation, um, Leadership for the church, a shepherd model, wrote this. These are really powerful words. The broader functions of the shepherd were to lead the sheep to pastures and water, protect them from wild animals, to guard them at night, whether in the open or in sheepfolds, where they counted them as they entered the fold. They took care of the sheep and they even carried weak lambs in their arms. He really delineates and enumerates well the responsibility of those who call themselves shepherds. First, to feed and refresh. Listen, you won't get fed if I tell you book reports or what I learned last week or what I think's a good idea. You're only fed. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's a responsibility of those in leadership to feed and to lead to fresh waters. And we do that through worship as we come into the presence of God. It is the responsibility of those who call themselves shepherds to protect from false teaching. I'll be honest, one of the most difficult things I've had to do over the last 35 years is to call out those things that are, are bad for people, those things that will destroy people, those things that will shatter and rock their faith. And there have been numerous occasions where sometimes when you do that, you look like the guy who has no faith. You look like the guy who isn't really believing right, but you understand what the Word says. And the Word says that the responsibility of the shepherd is to care for and protect the sheep. I look, like this one. Thirdly, um, Those of you who know I like numbers and I like to count, it even says that they counted them as they entered the fold. You all know that we count you every week. I hope that's not offensive to you. But on Monday morning, we all get together and we know who's here and who's not here. And guess what? If you miss three weeks in a row, you are a missing sheep. How about that? All right. And we come after your sorry tales if you do that too. So... So it is, it is part of the responsibility of leadership to count, to care, to make sure not one is missing. Not just let them go. Oh, well, we lost another one. It's the responsibility of those who care and lead to make certain that people are cared for well. And then carrying those who are broken. Shepherds are to walk through difficult places with those who are broken. Ministry is not for self-promotion. It's not for the perks for caring for those that God has entrusted to us. 
But notice they're over, over their shepherds, but also overseers, episkopos. What do we oversee? We literally oversee, watch, and care for their souls. I, I've done this for 35 years, and I'm not sure that I've ever been struck with it like I did when I prepared for this message. This is a serious issue. This, is, this, is a, this calling is pretty serious. Look at Hebrews 13, 7. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Look at this, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The reason that is a little bit frightening, a little bit ominous, listen, is because souls are eternal. Your uh, bank account's not eternal. Uh, Your car's not eternal. Your health's not eternal. Your home's not eternal. Your soul is. Your soul is either going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. And God has entrusted to oversee and watch over. We're not responsible for where that soul lands, but we are responsible to oversee it, to care for it, something that is eternal. That's a, that's a, a pretty serious task. In Ezekiel eighteen twenty, the Bible says the soul that sins shall die. It's eternal, will spend eternal damnation away from God. Ezekiel 33, some were made watchmen over the house. And Ezekiel says, if you don't warn those who are in danger, the blood will be at your hands. It is a serious, serious calling. I think where I I see this the most is in Acts chapter 20. And this is Paul's intervention, if you will, with the Ephesian elders. I talked about this earlier. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. He wanted to get there for the Passover, but he needed to make a quick stop at Ephesus because he wanted to talk to the leaders of that church, the elders of those churches, and he knew that it would be his last time. If you read it, it's really an emotional scene. They they hug one another, they cry, and they weep at the end because they know they won't see Paul again. But Paul doesn't even go inland. He's in a hurry and he meets them out at at the coast. They come out to meet him. And in his conversation with them, he says to them, he exhorts them, look, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you episcopos, overseers, to shepherd the church of God, look at this, which is purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul said to the elders, guys, this is serious. There will be false teaching that will come in. There will be philosophies that will find their way into the church. There will be those even from the inside that will lay hold of things that are, that are detrimental to the body. And you have to watch over those that the Holy Spirit has entrusted to you. And, and the thing that really hits me is shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Those in leadership in church are overseers of that which is eternal the soul, and that which was purchased with the blood of Jesus. It is a serious, serious call. Number three, called leaders must also guard their motives. They must guard their motives. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. But look at these next three phrases. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
Notice these three phrases that Peter uses. The first of these is not by compulsion, but willingly. And go ahead and put that next screen up. Not by compulsion, but willingly. You see, under the stress of suffering and trial and persecution that the first century church was experiencing, they needed to fulfill their role with joy. Peter said, I don't want you to do this because you have to. I don't mean, well, I guess I'll do this. There needs to be a joy in what one is doing. If it was a drudgery and persecution came, they weren't going to care for people. They were going to care for themselves first. And Peter knew that. He knew that leaders would be the target of the enemy during persecution. And he knew that if all of their focus was on themselves, they would never effectively lead. And he said, I want you to lead, not because you have to, but I want you to do it willingly. Secondly, he said, don't do it for dishonest gain, but eagerly. To do it eagerly is the opposite of drudgery. It's not I have to, it's I'm eager to do it. But in your eagerness, Peter said, don't drain or fleece the flock. It's not for you to to build a little kingdom. It's not for you to have more. How sad has it been? It's probably always gone on, but I think it's been more obvious to us in the last several decades. So many that have fleece the flock. They have used a ministry role to build their own little kingdom and to, to puff up their own prestige. Both Jesus and Paul taught and backed the idea of elders being paid, but never was it a responsibility that they were to misuse or manipulate for dishonest gain. Check your motives. And thirdly, he says that we are to lead not as being lords over those entrusted to us, but being examples to the flock. It's so crucial that leaders lead by example. There is no place for dictatorial leadership in the body of Christ. That's not what God has called us to. There's no place to say my way, but the highway. It is to lead by example. And Peter is so clear, not as lords over those who were entrusted to you, but examples. The Gentiles, Jesus said, lord over those that they lead. But you are to lead by example, he said, by one's faithfulness, by one's work ethic, by one's service, by one's forgiveness. Called leaders must check their motives. And then finally, uh, called leaders must be accountable leaders. There's no place for, in leadership in the church, for someone to run amok, to be unaccountable. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, these are some strong words. Paul said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So he says, we're two things. Number one, we are servants of Christ. That's the one we're going to talk about. And secondly, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That means we have the word of God that we are to teach. We are to steward it well. These are the mysteries of God and we need to take great care in communicating them well. But we are also servants of Christ. And moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now look at what Paul says here. Um, But with me, it is a very small thing, watch this, that I should, number one, be judged by you. Number two, or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, number three, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. And then number four, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts that each one's praise will come from God. Paul here is talking about the leader's accountability. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ. He is a 
He is a steward of the mysteries of God, but also a servant of Christ. That is the one that Paul or Peter says he answers to. We're to take our orders from him and his word, not the trends, not secular philosophies, not the latest thing on Facebook, not the hottest new Christian book. But those who lead are to take their orders from Christ. And in this passage, there are four possibilities of judgment on a preacher and on his message. And all of these are real. The first is this. You can all smile at me. I know this is pretty serious stuff, but we'll have a little fun with this. The first is congregational evaluation. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I just want you to ask yourself, how many of you are involved, at least on occasion, in congregational evaluation of the preacher? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. I'm guessing all of you, all right? And, and so, we, we, first of all, Paul said, I, I, it's no small thing, Paul said to me, that I am judged by you. Now, what Paul was really saying is, I have to take that as the least important thing when I look at my own ministry. I want to hear from what people have to say, but I can't run ministry. Listen, if anyone ran a ministry or led a church by congregational evaluation, it would go all over the place. And that's the point that Paul is making. And you all don't have to worry because my mom still attends here and she tells me not to get too big for my britches, okay? So we're all safe. You don't even have to worry about that. She's got it covered, trust me, all right? And, and so Stuart Briscoe, he, he was great pastor, pastored for years up, up in Milwaukee at Elmbrook Church. And, and he wrote something years ago that was really helpful to me. And, and I, I've always remembered it. He, he talked about three ways congregational pressure can affect the preacher. The first one is adulation. And he says it can swell the preacher's head. You know, I love it when you tell me it was a great sermon. You're doing a good job. And, but if seven of you in a row say that, then, you know, it's just human nature. Our heads can swell a little bit. And then comes along the second group of people, which are the manipulators. They don't swell the pastor's head. They tie the pastor's hands. And if that's not bad enough, there are those who just feel like it's their calling to be in opposition to everything the pastor does, and they break his heart. And so what you end up with is a bi or a tripolar pastor, all right, because he's got all these things going on. Um, but, but Paul says, this has to be a very small thing to me. Richard and Julie Winkle were here last night. I don't remember which service, but they heard this message, and they took it on themselves to, to play this out. So on their way out, Richard said to me, and she's right behind him, I don't think you did a very good job tonight. And he walked on out, and she followed him up and said, I think you did a great job tonight. So they kind of balanced one another out. So make sure in line today as you go out that you, if you hear somebody say something nice, make sure you kick me in the ribs on your way out. All right? So congregational evaluation. Secondly, is societal evaluation. That is, and Paul calls it, or Peter calls it, no, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 4, the human court. That is what the community thinks of us. And that can also be a roller coaster. And so uh, Paul said, I can't make that my primary function. And thirdly, is self-judgment. And Paul said, listen, here's what he said. I don't judge myself. He didn't really say, I don't judge myself at all. I don't judge myself anymore because I've already looked at everything and I don't see anything else. But Paul said, I'm not satisfied by that. You know what Paul was saying? Paul was saying, I can look myself over, but I can have blind spots that I'll never see. So if I depend on self-judgment, if I, well, I seem okay to myself and I, I pray and I'm not really listening 
So Paul says, I, I'm not even going to bank on my self-judgment. Congregational evaluation can go all over, the, all over the place. Societal evaluation can go up and down. My own self-judgment can, can certainly have blind spots. But finally, he says, it, it's the Lord's judgment that really matters. Therefore, he who judges me is the Lord. And, and Paul's talking about being open to the Holy Spirit. The Lord judges those in leadership on an ongoing basis. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's the still small voice that says you had an attitude today that was wrong. You need to say you're sorry, or you were a little too prideful there, or you held on to a bitterness too long. And we have to, all of us, not just leaders, have to allow the Lord to judge us. And then Paul adds a final one, and that is actually the final judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And there will be some great moments there when we rejoice in what God has done, but there'll be some very sad moments when we realize what we have failed to do, and what we have missed. So a healthy church, number one, must have leaders that understand and fully embrace their calling. I'm going to give you the last two really quickly. We're not going to be here much longer. Secondly, the younger in the congregation must submit themselves to the leadership. Look at 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to the elders. Let me talk to you for just a moment. We, uh, we live in really interesting times right now. Um, that's, that's a good way to say it. Really interesting times. We have this perfect storm of an absolute denial by the academic world and the intellectually elite, an absolute denial of any absolute truth. Nothing is absolutely true. And at the same time, we have this, this groundswell of rebellion against any authoritative structure whatsoever. Nobody wants to be accountable to anyone. We're not going to submit to the government. We're not going to submit to our teachers. We're not going to submit to our coaches. We're not going to submit to our parents. There is a groundswell of rebellion against anything that is authoritative. There is a disdain for authority, and young people are taught to challenge authority now at a very young age. Some shocking things come out of at least the coast of America and the education systems that are teaching young people to absolutely deny even what their parents who hold on to values that are conservative They are taught to challenge those values. I'm talking about in grade school. We're living in a world where the idea of authority is almost anathema. And absolute truth has gone out the window. And it has created an absolute chaotic mess in our world. If we don't regain in the church and in the homes the kind of authority structures that God intended... We will not be a healthy church to help broken people when times are difficult. Peter says, younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. Submission does not mean agreement. It means respect. It means trust and patience with wisdom that is being exercised. I can't say it any better than him, so I'm only going to read it. But Victor Austin, in his Up With Authority uses the analogy of an orchestra to explain why we need human authority. He writes this, orchestras need conductors because the musicians don't have a single right answer to questions like, what should we play at the concert? 
Or what should we practice today? Or how should we interpret this passage? Each musician might have a perfectly reasonable opinion, but their opinions will inevitably be different and will almost always be incompatible with one another. And it's no good for each musician to do what is right in his or her own ears. It won't do for the brass section to insist on playing one musical piece if the strings have chosen to play a completely different piece. If the orchestra is going to perform coherently, if the musicians want to perform music rather than just make noise, somebody has to have the authority to decide. By submitting to the authority of a conductor, individual musicians attain musical expression they could never realize individually or even as a collection of freewheeling players. Authority is necessary for classical musicians to bring musical fulfillment to others. In the words of Victor Lee Austin, the conductor's authority yields a greater degree of human flourishing than we would have from the musicians separately or individually. And what is true of the orchestra is also true of everyday life, our culture, the church, and our homes. Glad Tidings is committed to developing young leaders. We must have young leaders that emerge. We have planted one church. We will, the second one will launch here in two or three weeks. We hope over the next several years to plant churches in many other communities. But we are going to need young people with a call of God on their life to fill not only pastoral roles, but many other roles in ministry. And we need what young people bring to us. We need to hear their voice. We need to hear their desires, their passions. We need to listen because we can learn and they can learn from us. The future of Glad Tidings demands that we develop new leaders, but we also never want to abandon the old wisdom either. One of my favorite texts, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight: do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. There's some ancient landmarks like the priority of worship in the church, passionate passionate pursuit of prayer, the power of holiness. Those are things that we must not lay aside. There must be a submission of the younger to those ancient landmarks that we know that are absolute. And at the same time, we must learn together and grow in Christ. Let me give you the third point. I'll be done. Not only... um, The leaders need to understand their role and the younger need to submit. But thirdly, the entire church must interact with mutual submission and godly humility. It's my favorite part of the message. It'll be the shortest part, but it's my favorite part. Likewise, you younger people submit. And then look at this part. Yes, all of you, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud. Again, look at me for just a moment. Again, we are reminded, especially in times of suffering and persecution, we need, we need one another. Listen, um, worship team is going to come, but I want you to listen to me in these final two or three minutes. I've said this a few times in this series. We're not going to get kudos from a world that is pushing back on the church. We're not going to get support and encouragement. We're not going to get flattery. We're not going to get attaboys. We're not going to have the world share our burdens. We need one another. And that's why Peter said, all of you, all of you. He's already called elders and younger 
Now he says, all of you, the whole body, be submissive to one another and be clothed. I love that phrase, clothed with humility. You know what Peter's thinking about when he wrote that? I, I would almost, I, I would almost bet money that uh, Peter has in mind. He's now about three decades older than he was on the night that he remembers. But he remembers that night was the night that Jesus would be crucified. He was in, an, in the upper room and they were around the table with Jesus. Jesus was serving the meal. And he was around that table with people like Levi and James and John and Andrew, his brother, Judas, Thomas. They're all there around the table. And, and those knucklehead disciples, not realizing what an important hour this is, are arguing about who the greatest one was. You know, Thomas maybe even said he was the greatest one because he asked more questions. He didn't just believe what people told him. And Peter probably said, I've seen more miracles than John. said, look how close I am to Jesus right now. I must be there. They're all arguing about who the greatest one is. And while they're arguing about that, the greatest one in the room got up. Unbeknownst to them, he got up from the table and he laid aside his outer garment. He girded himself with a towel and knelt down and one by one he began to wash their feet that's what Peter remembered when he wrote we all need to clothe ourselves with humility that's why he said be leaders by example because that's what Jesus did Peter's had his arrogant years and they're apparently past and uh, Peter just said let's clothe ourselves with the humility of Christ. That needs to happen in the church between fellow church members. That needs to happen with leadership in church. That needs to happen with you and your co-workers. It needs to happen with our spouses. Clothe ourselves with humility. Lay aside that robe that says, I have to always be right. And you hurt me too badly. Lay that aside clothe yourself with humility. J.I. Packer, I'm going to put this quote on the screen. Why don't you stand with me if you would. J.I. Packer, um, one of the great writers of the 20th century. He actually just died July of this year. If you've never read anything by J.I. Packer, get the book Knowing God. It's an amazing book. He says this, we grow up into Christ. We grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness. Offloading our fantasies of omnicompetence, we start trying to be trustful, obedient, dependent, patient, and willing in our relationship with God. This is powerful. Listen, we give up our dreams of being greatly admired for doing wonderfully well. We begin teaching ourselves unemotionally and matter-of-factly to recognize that we are not likely ever to appear or actually to be much of anything or much of a success by the world's standards. We bow to the events that rub our noses in the reality of our own weakness. And we look to God for strength quietly to come. In that last paragraph, for that last sentence. It is impossible at the same time to give impression both that I am a great Christian 
and that Jesus Christ is a great master. I, I cannot say, look at me, look how great I am, look how I've thrived, and say that he is also a great master because if I'm a great Christian, I am a servant that is totally dependent upon my master and my job is for him to increase and for me to decrease. I cannot do both at once. And finally, so the Christian will practice curling up small as it were, so that in and through him or her, the Savior may show himself great. That's what I mean by growing downward. Bow your heads with me if you would, please. If you happen to be here today and at the nine o'clock service, we had someone raise their hand really fast and really high. I know that I preach to really church issues only. But if you happen to be here today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, and you say, Pastor Kevin, I want to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Just slip up a hand right where you're at. I'd love to pray with you. Is there anyone in this room that can say, pray for me? I want to give my life to Christ. Anyone in this place today? Your heads bowed still. Let me ask you this question. How many today would honestly say, I want to grow upward toward Christ as I grow downward? and in brokenness. Somebody would raise your hand and say, that is the desire of my heart and my life. Father, you know our hearts this morning. And Lord, we desire to grow downward so that we can grow upward and be seated in heavenly places with you. I pray, God, that uh, you would stir our hearts, challenge our hearts, and allow may we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. May we all clothe ourselves with humility with one another so that when broken people, as the world seems to unravel more and more, and broken people come through our doors so that we, God, will be ready to care for them and love them and minister to them in their time of pain. Lord, stir that in our hearts and help us to embrace our responsibility. Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord together.